This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then use it as an excuse to argue about shit. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I am Brian Latendry, and we are going to come out of the box today with the 2003 album from Metallica, Saint Anger. Oh, the controversial album. <laughs> I know, I am. I cannot wait to dig into this one, and uh, there's just so many, it's such a fascinating album for so many different reasons, so I'm, I'm super excited about talking about Saint Anger. Yeah, well, and I mean, let's, let's start off setting out our stall by saying, I like this album. I know a lot of people really, really don't, but I like it. And I think you do too. You're a fan, aren't you? I am a fan of it. And um, for a lot of different reasons. And the, the first one, as I mentioned before, is because it's such a fascinating album. And so it is something that, to me, makes me want to go back and listen to it because of what went into making this album, sort of where Metallica was. And, and, and we'll certainly get into that. But uh, I like albums that are a reflection of where a band is at. In, in a particular place in time. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the, I would hold this album up as a textbook example of that. And so um, it's, it's a fascinating album to yeah, me. To the point where James is like singing about his psychotherapy, <laughs> like at least one track that I can think of. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, many of the tracks and, and lyrically, this is an album that is essentially, you know, James's sort of identity crisis at this point in his life. And it's, it's one of the things that makes it such an interesting album. I think. Although, do you know, having said that, um, if I recall correctly from the Some Kind of Monster documentary, which I know you watched again recently. Um, I watched it last night. Right. D- didn't they share some of the, like, Kirk at least wrote some lyrics, and didn't Lars write some as well? They did, and it was, uh, from what they showed in the movie, I mean, basically you had, um, it, there was a lot of interesting sort of tugs of war around who's responsible for what part of the songwriting and things like that. But there was at least an idea on the band's part that they were going to get together and everybody was going to sort of uh, come together and, and help write lyrics. And there's a couple of places, at least in the movie, where you see that play out. And one of the songs that they kind of collaborated lyrically on is the um, Shoot Me Again song, which we'll talk about as we sort of go through the album. But that was a place where it seemed like James and Lars were able to share some of the lyric writing and both be really happy with what the outcome of the song was. So, So that was kind of a an interesting contrast to a lot of the other places, you know, in the making of that album where they were on very opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. uh, Well, and that's partly why I brought it up because like, if you didn't know that James hadn't written all the lyrics on this album, you would just assume that he had, you know what I mean? It's like the lyrics aren't, I know they are kind of different in, because you're right, that it does sound a bit like a midlife crisis on on vinyl um, or CD. Uh, But, you know, knowing that James wrote the lyrics for all the previous albums, if you just heard this one fresh, you'd be like, "Yeah, you know, you you just it wouldn't even enter your mind to think that it wasn't that these weren't all his lyrics as well." Which is kind of, I don't know what that says either about him as a lyricist or about the fact that obviously everyone else in the band has been with him and sort of, you know, subject to his lyrics as it were for so long that. It all kind of, you know, they kind of write lyrics to fit him, maybe? I don't know. Well, and this this album, I, I think, is just a, a perfect microcosm of the dynamic between James and Lars. And and going into this album, I mean, their, their previous album was 1997's Reload. So it had been, you know, at the time they started recording this, it had been four years since their, their previous album had come out because this was like a two-year process to, mm, yeah. to actually make this album. But they had just lost Jason Newstead. So they were without a bassist. Their longtime producer, Bob Rock, actually played bass on this album, primarily because at the time, they couldn't even fathom auditioning a new bassist and bringing them into that 
creative process because they were just in a really sort of fractured place as a band. And so it was really, it was a four man unit because Bob had been with them for a long time, you know, through different albums, but it was, it was Kirk and it was Lars and it was James. And primarily, you know, it was sort of James and Lars going through this turning point in the band and their relationship in just years and years of sort of buildup of of the dynamic between the two of them. And, uh, and yeah, so I think that, as you said, it's, it feels like, it could have all been written by James, but I think in some ways the band itself was in a similar place to probably where James was. And so whatever they were mm-hmm. going to write was kind of going to fit into that same, that, that same space of just being, being in a place where, you know, at that point after reload, people were questioning their credibility. Yeah. <laughs> are, are these guys capable of writing a really heavy album? Are these guys capable of sort of quote unquote returning to their roots? And so they had that, then they had Jason leaving. And as you see with James in the movie, like he has a really tough time dealing with anybody um, sort of walking out of the picture and, and the whole abandonment thing. And so you've got that going on and then you've got the pressure of it being by the time this comes out six years from their previous album and how the landscape of, of heavy metal has changed and all that kind of stuff. And so, so much pressure on those guys every time that they do an album and then you throw all of these dynamics in and the fact that James, you know, eventually felt like he needed to go into rehab and and deal with that. I mean, just uh, just so much emotion. And that's one of the things that draws me to this album is that it's a super emotional album that you can just sort of feel that angst and that overwhelmedness in every single song on the entire album. Yeah. Do you know, that's I'd forgotten. I don't know how exactly, but I'd forgotten that it was between reload in this that Jason had left. And that's crazy because one of the things when I was re-listening to this myself, one of the notes I made was there are a lot of parallels between this and and Justice for All in some ways. You've yep. got a you know a band trying to find itself, struggling to define what they are. You've got frankly long rambling songs that at first seem like they've got very little structure. Um and yeah, and I'd completely forgotten and of course lost just lost a bassist. Um, right. That's wow. Yeah, that really does bring it all like sort of full circle. But you've then got the complete opposite in terms of sound from Injustice, because Justice, obviously, you know, famously very, very cold, flat, and clinical sounding. You know, as uh, I think the old joke was that Lars was playing biscuit tin lids. You know, um, right. And then Instant Anger is muddy and raw and chaotic, and you know, there's barely any treble, and it's just kind of like swampy almost which personally i prefer but considering that the circumstances of the two records have so many parallels it's interesting that they sound so incredibly different and i think one of the parallels between those two albums is that um you know uh, up until and justice for all and justice for all you could really see how the bass was just basically missing from that album oh yeah, yeah. and then when you listen to saint anger it's not that the bass is missing but the bass is very uh basic no pun intended and and i, I have right i was it's reading not a lot doing of interviews by exactly. itself is it it's just following right. james yeah and and bob rock was interviewed many many times about this album but one of the things that he talked about with this album was that he because of the place that they were in and because of the fact that he was sort of filling in and playing bass and he's a guitar player by you know by trade in addition to being a producer not so much a bass player he was just trying to follow everybody else's lead hold down the rhythm um, and not do anything, you know, sort of out of the ordinary with the bass. So while you can hear the bass on this album, it's definitely like as you mentioned, not doing anything 
really out of the ordinary. And and what's fascinating about Metallica as a band is that they began with you know one of the greatest bass players of all time and they currently have one of the greatest bass players of all time and both of those guys uh both Cliff Burton and Robert Trujillo are uh finger pickers as opposed to what a Bob Rock does or what Jason Newstead was which was that they both played with a pick primarily and you can mm-hmm. tell the difference if you if you um you know, if you if you like listening to bass players, you can certainly tell the difference in the styles. But Robert Trujillo, to me, is very much closer to um, what Cliff Burton brought to the band, and I think you can hear that when you listen to Death Magnetic, which is, I'm sure, an album that we'll talk about, you know, sometime in the future. But he wasn't involved in the recording of this album, and so it was really Bob no, Rock just no. kind of holding down the fort, doing what he needed to do, and and providing that basic rhythm um, to the song. So he he sort of sacrificed that in service to the album. I wonder when they play live if uh, Rob Trujillo drops in the occasional suicidal tendencies riff the same way that Cliff used to do Leonard Skinner riffs. <laughs> yeah, I think he can't help it um, because if you've ever, you know, obviously you know who, who Robert is, but for those listeners who may not have followed his career in both uh, Suicidal Tendencies and Infectious Grooves, which was sort of a more funked out version of Suicidal Tendencies, um, he is very... He's a very free player, and he's a very aggressive player, and he does a lot of fills, and he does a lot of interesting things with bass lines. And so I'm quite sure, although I haven't seen them with him live, I'm quite sure that he he adds uh, he adds a lot of elements to all of those songs that might have a more basic bass line. I'm sure he takes it up a level. Yeah, yeah, yeah I could believe that. Um, what was that. Right, before we go on to the album itself, um, I mean, yeah, you're right. We have to talk about the sort of, the place that the band were in and the psychology, if you like, of it. Um, because they were it, not just the fact that the band themselves, they'd lost a bassist and they were clearly like sort of struggling to find their own identity, but also um, Reload came out, you know, let's not mince words, before Slipknot and Linkin Park. Sure. This was released after Slipknot and Linkin Park. And whatever you may think of them, Slipknot and Linkin Park changed the face of metal in like around about the year 2000, you know, give or take a year here or there, but certainly between these two albums. And that's got to have been for a band as big as Metallica that were used to, you know, 10 years before they had redefined metal. Yeah. The the black album completely redefined heavy metal and was, I mean, that's got to be one of the most popular metal albums of all time, surely, if not the, um, and so suddenly for them to be like, Oh, hang on, somebody else is leading. And suddenly we're not the tastemakers anymore. We're not the trendsetters. You you can see sort of the, the chinks in the armor and that uh, mentally affecting them over the course of making this album. And again, uh, in the um, in the Some Kind of Monster documentary, that is, uh, I think, best illustrated in a conversation where Kirk Hammett is extremely frustrated because, uh, you know, d- Lars, who is prone to saying just really stupid things sometimes, and it's you great that they get, <laughs> they get caught on camera a lot. And so, you know, they're sitting in the engineering room and Lars says, you know, I'm just thinking that, you know, guitar solos are kind of, kind of outdated at this point. And, and that's when I think Kirk, who, uh, I have such a different respect for him after watching that movie, because as we talked about, you know, in the past, um, I'm a Dave Mustaine fan. And so I always had this sort of chip on my shoulder about Kirk Hammett, but he really is a guy who is completely underappreciated in Metallica. And he's sitting there listening to this nonsense from Lars talking about how guitar (laughs) solos are outdated. And he just says, that is complete bullshit. And he went on to say, and I think I might've wrote the quote down. 
uh, he says, if you don't put a guitar solo in one of these songs, you're cementing it to a time period of right now to a trend that is happening in music. So you just talked about, you know, your Linkin Parks and your Slipknots and things like that. But Kirk was basically saying, don't give me that nonsense. You you know, that what you're saying is basically a mask for the fact that you're seeing the landscape of, of music right now. And you're feeling like we need to chase that a little bit. And Kirk was basically saying, we don't need to chase that. We're freaking Metallica. We don't have to worry about what other people are doing or let us be affected by that. But clearly they were because St. Anger does not feature any guitar solos. And yeah. in, in my mind breaks one of the golden rules of my metal fandom, which is that you have to have guitar solos in, <laughs> in heavy metal songs. So that, that if that's one ding against this album for me is that, um, and I think it against the Kirk Hammett era of Metallica in general is that I've always felt like they haven't allowed him to play how he's capable of playing. And that was, that was pretty evident in that conversation, but yeah. So I think you're right. The landscape had changed. And even though these guys are used to being the leaders in the industry and in terms of state sales still obviously are, um, they felt the need to look at what other people were doing and maybe follow a bit of those trends. And, and that was one of them, you know, the idea that every song doesn't need to have a guitar solo and maybe this whole album won't. And it didn't. Yeah. Well, and I was, I was thinking that again, when I was listening to it, thinking like, this is, the last album I can remember that had no solos before this was um, Hybrid Theory, Linkin Park's debut album, which, you know, was only, what, two years, three years before this was released. So, and it was a time period where, yeah, guitar solos were kind of out of fashion. I mean, they're back in now, They obviously. were. You're which, absolutely right. Which proves Kirk's point. They go in and out of fashion, you know. Right, and I think what what Linkin Park understood um, on their debut album that Metallica forgot about is you can't have seven minute songs without guitar solos. Right, and, yeah. and that, all their songs are really where, short. Yeah, exactly. And so you know, if you want to take out the guitar solo, you don't replace it with a boring you know rinse, a wash, rinse, repeat riff that you play over and over and over again because then you're you're actually taking away something that usually adds a different element to a song and you're just replacing it with the same parts of the song that people are already used to hearing. And I think that's one of the things that this album suffers from in its 75 minute length is that um, when you take out the guitar solos, you're, you should make the, sh- the songs shorter. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they took out the guitar <laughs> solos and made the songs longer without necessarily adding anything. And uh, Brad Delson, without getting into Linkin Park, Brad Delson, Linkin Park's guitarist, I've seen interviews with him where he will happily say, you know, I am not the greatest guitar player in the world. You know, sure. he, he is not capable of playing solos the way somebody like Kirk Hammett can. Uh, and that does inform their songwriting and how they play. But what he does play, he plays incredibly well. If you ever hear them or see them live, you know, contrary to this idea that they're some kind of, you know, manufactured band that can't play their instruments or whatever, if you ever sure. actually hear them live, they are incredibly tight live, incredibly tight. And he is a really, you know, as I say, for what he does, he does it really, really well. But he can't play, you know, a thousand notes a minute fret wanking uh, Kirk Hammett or Dave Mustaine style solos and sure. clearly doesn't want to. <laughs> no, and that band is not structured that way to begin with. So, what the, you know, what they bring to the table musically is is a little bit of a more diverse sound and they're not relying on the traditional elements of a, of a metal song or a rock song as much, which I think is, is fine. So you don't necessarily need a guitar player. You know, and, and this kind of goes back to, and we didn't talk about this at the beginning, but sort of where we come from musically in, in terms of our musical background and our musical tastes. And for me, I was a child of the 80s and in early 90s and that was my time in middle school and high school where my sort of formative years of heavy metal listening were were happening and 
at that point in time, it was all about you had a lead guitar player, you usually had a rhythm guitar player, you had the bass player, you had the drummer, you had the lead singer, and there was a formula to metal and rock at that point in time. Uh, hair metal certainly had it down to an absolute science in terms of what every song should sound like, but yeah. even for <laughs> your thrash metal bands and things like that, there was expectations of what a song was supposed to be. And so, you know, to my ears, that that's when that's when my sort of listening ears were forged in terms of metal and rock. And so it is harder for me sometimes to get into some of those other, um, you know, genres of rock and metal that, that don't fit that mold. And so, yeah, for Metallica to pull guitar solos out of, you know, uh, their music was, was a pretty big deal at the time. And even going back and listening to it now, it's, it's a notable absence for sure. Well, and I think it was a big deal for most of their fans as well, because, you know, apart from people who only got into them during the Black Album era, anybody who was a fan of Metallica from before then was basically a thrash fan. Sure. Um, you know, it's, it is fair to say that the Black Album pr- wasn't very thrash. It was a great album, but it wasn't very thrash. Whereas everything they'd done up to that point was and defined thrash metal, um, you know, very much. And so anybody who was a fan from that era on hearing this album you know, you can understand that a lot of them were just like, what the fuck is this? But as, especially those who were sort of hanging on for a return to form because, yeah, yeah. you know, as a Metallica fan who grew up listening to them back in the day, Kill 'em All, Ride the Lightning, my two favorite Metallica albums, Master of Puppets, still fantastic album, and Justice for All, in my mind at the time, was the last great Metallica album. And so I was continually waiting for, you know, more than a decade for their sort of return to form. And when St. Anger came out, especially when the first video landed for St. Anger itself, I mean, it sounded different, but it sounded aggressive. So there was a lot of sort of high hopes going into this album of like, oh, okay, yeah. they're not messing around now. They've they've found, they found that core again. I can't wait to hear what this is. And then it was a rude awakening, I think, for a lot of fans who had a certain expectation going into it, or even, you know, after hearing the first cut, um, thought that it was going to be something different than it was. And And that's sort of one of those things where it's difficult to, in the moment, process sort of how good that overall album is or how how it's going to fit in your mental library of albums, you know, years from now. And and that kind of goes to another thing that, that, it, that sort of bugs me about how people listen to music today. Like, in my mind, I can't even formulate an opinion about an album until I've listened to it at least three times all the way through. And I don't skip any songs. I go straight through three times in a row, you know, maybe not in one sitting, but I, I will not start picking out my favorite songs or anything else until I've listened to an album three times in a row. Because to me, an album is like a book. There's a story being told. You have to see why the creators chose to put the songs in this particular order, what the flow of the album is, and you have to listen to it in its entirety. And so for me, it's three listens before I even start to to sort of break it apart or think about how I feel about it. And this was an album that it took me a lot more than three listens to really figure out what I thought about it. Um, but the fact that I kept coming back to it was was um, was something that I knew there was something there because I kept listening to it. And so, you know, with a lot of albums, once I get past that third listen, I can say, nah, this album's not for me. It's not, you know, it's it's not something that I'm going to revisit again, but I've given it its shot in terms of what the creators were trying to do. I think you and I are both showing our age a little there because I'm, 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 I'm similar, maybe not three times, but I, I'm similar. Yeah, I like to listen to an album at least twice before I decide my first impressions of it. Um, and okay, so that's probably a good 
uh, point for me to talk about my, I'm a little bit older than you. Uh, my background is that I grew up listening to stuff like Black Sabbath and Motorhead, mm-hmm. thanks to my father. Um, cause he's a, you know, he's not a big extreme metal fan, but he, he likes those bands. So I grew up listening to his records, um, of those. And then I'm trying to think sort of, well, Iron Maiden were regularly in the charts when I was growing up. Um, it like, and they, they would actually feature on British TV on yep. uh, top of the pops, which I'm sure you've heard of it. You know, Absolutely. All, yeah. Um, and they would actually be on it, you know, and, and they weren't the only metal band. Motorhead were regularly on it as well. But Iron Maiden were sort of quite regularly uh, known as the great British metal band of the time. Um, I'm not actually a huge Maiden fan. I like them fine, but, you know, I'm not a huge Maiden fan. But so that's, and that's kind of approaching. It's not thrash, but it's approaching thrash. And their music, as we know, was a big influence on the, you know, original thrash bands and bands like Metallica. So... I kind of, I kind of came up with it, if you like, but I very quickly discovered, and this, I'm sure this goes back to Motorhead and the philosophy of like, you know, everything louder than everything else. I very quickly discovered that my tastes generally run towards stuff that is less clinical than Maiden and than Megadeth, as we talked about previously. Um, So... Uh, it's interesting that you say that Kill 'Em All and Lightning are your two favorite albums because my favorite albums of Metallica's are of the early albums are Lightning and Puppets. Um, I'm not as keen on Kill 'Em All because it does sa- it is a bit thin and a bit clinical, whereas Lightning and Puppets to me sound like the sort of you know a band that's really found itself and sort of struck that creative vein and they're just writing song after song after song is pouring out of them and they're all different sure. and they're all great and you know they sound like a band really comfortable in what they're doing whereas kill them all i like but it, it sounds like a band trying to find its feet you know trying to figure out what they're about and what they're doing that's really interesting because i think that that will give listeners a good idea of where our venn diagram sort of overlaps so i think <laughs> you know ride the lightning would be a good example of where our musical you know sort of uh, ears overlap because you're absolutely right it, you know that's probably the perfect combination of I still like the fact that they had the Dave Mustaine influence. They also had Cliff Burton still in the band. So Ride the Lightning to me is uh, is just a, an amazing, amazing album. And then by the time that Master Puppets came around, it you could see that Mustaine's influence was sort of waning at that point. And then they had found what would go on to be, you know the sound that they were probably most known for. So so yeah, I, I totally get that. And and I did like Maiden's uh technicality i did like their their sort of uh, progressive prowess and in their complex you know rhythms and things like that and so especially from a bass standpoint i've always been a mm. sucker for bass and and you know i have a bass sitting in my room that i that i still am trying to learn how to play but never have actually you know figured out how to do that but uh but yeah i've, I've always been you know a, a fan of bass players and so I, I loved Maiden, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm just, I'll rip the bandaid off. I'm 40 now. I'm going to be 41 in July. So I was in middle school and high school, you know, late eighties, early nineties. And so that's really where all of that stuff sort of came together for me on my 17th birthday. <laughs> I was at a place in Connecticut, um, that I saw the clash of the Titans tour, which was anthrax, Megadeth Slayer, and it was Alice in Chains at the time. And so yeah, so I I grew up going to concerts. I saw Metallica on the Injustice for All tour with Queensryche opening for them. And uh wow. 
that's a really weird bill. I know, right? And it was awesome because, and, and this is an album, not to spoil things for people, but Operation Mindcrime is an album that we're going to have to talk about at some point because that that is a absolute masterpiece. But yeah, so Queensryche- I'm going I'm to kill you now. I've never heard Operation Mindcrime. Oh. <laughs> you literally have stunned me speechless with that. Uh, we, I'm, I'm not going to let myself go down the rabbit hole of that, but we will absolutely, I'm excited now. Now I'm very excited because that's a concept album. And it's one yeah, of the few know, concepts album that's actually done well. Um, and I think that you will find a lot to like there. So we'll definitely talk about that. But yeah, I saw Queensryche open for them at the time. So Jason Newstead was there, you know. Um, and so I, I'm a lifelong Metallica fan, even though I became more of a Megadeth fan over the years and, and sort of had a chip on my shoulder about that. But uh, but yeah, I mean, so so to get back to, to St. Anger... It's such an interesting album because of where they were at as a group and also sort of what the creative process was like with Bob Rock filling in on bass. And when you watch that movie, Some Kind of Monster, you see that, the, I mean, that whole process, James being gone for like almost a year, I think, in, in rehab and, and then, yeah. you know, slowly coming back in and then having these rules. And it's just a fascinating insight into the power struggle that was constantly going on between James and Lars that reached all the way back to why Dave Mustaine was kicked out of the band, all the way to why uh, Jason probably left the band, to the role that Kirk Hammett has in the band, and to the way that Bob Rock sort of interacted with those guys. And it's just, it's about them too, constantly struggling with their own sort of inner demons, but also, you know, forging this alliance to make this really sort of amazing music. And and I don't know whether they were successful or not with Saint Anger, but it's an absolutely fascinating album to listen to. Um, One of the things I love about Some Kind of Monster uh, and their... I mean, obviously, they started all this with the year and a half in the life of videos for the Black Album. Um, sure. And since then, it seems that they've basically had some at least one person with a camera following them around 24-7. But yep. one of the things I like about that is because, right, I was uh, I was doing a bit of design freelance at Metal Hammer when St. Anger was released. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, and I remember all the con- massive controversy over the sound and how it sounded awful if you ripped it to MP3. There were people, there were genuinely a lot of people wondering if the band had deliberately mixed and mastered it specifically so that it would sound bad if you compressed it to mp3s because uh-huh. as revenge for the whole napster thing <laughs> i'm not sure if that's even possible but even if it was it sort of it assumes this this grand master plan and a you know a sort of uh, a level of thought and conspiracy theory that when you then if you then watch some kind of monster you're like oh god no these guys couldn't organize their way out of a paper bag at this exactly. point in time there is no way that they deliberately thought, oh yeah, we're going to stuff it to the people who like steal MP3s. <laughs> exactly, you're absolutely 100 percent right, and and I think if there is, you know, a central concept to this album that you think they did it on purpose or whatever, I think the central concept simply was we want to do something different, we want to do something yeah. raw, we yeah. want to do something that people aren't expecting from us. And you and had I, a guy like I really appreciate the fact that a band the size of Metallica. Now, okay, as we say, they weren't the trendsetters anymore, but they were still enormous. You know, through even throughout the sort of period of low and reload when everybody was like oh Metallica have finished whatever they were still regularly selling out football stadiums you know they were still a massive massive band and I really like that a band that size with basically unlimited budget and access to any equipment they wanted went into the studio and said no fuck that we're a metal band we're going to sound raw and nasty and hard and aggressive 
not, you know, slick and polished. And I really like that because it's so many bands that reach that kind of level immediately then don't. You know, they spend millions on the 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 cleanest and best and finest recording equipment they can get and they spend hours worrying about their guitar tone and the drum tone and and you know on as you see on the video they no none of that they just went into the studio plugged in turned everything up as loud as they could and played yeah and i think that's a that's a good sort of way to come at this album as well as is in terms of sort of the um the design choices that they made so you know clearly Bob Rock, a guy who is known for putting out very polished, very sonically sound albums, went against his own tendencies yeah. in this one. He did, he didn't tune James's vocals. He didn't yeah, clean and you up can a tell. lot of the stuff. <laughs> you can tell, and I would argue that that uh, I don't like the melodic James Hetfield. So I I was to me this was the best he sounded since Ride the Lightning. Like oh, really? I, that's I, crazy. Yeah. I liked that he totally just went for it and was screaming, and his voice is off key sometimes and yeah, things like that. Because yeah, yeah, I prefer. Yeah. I prefer James Hetfield before singing lessons. And so, you know, him him not being tuned up and him not, you know, like, uh, which again goes back to your motorhead and stuff like that. Like, I, you don't have to sound pretty for me in a heavy metal band. And he doesn't sound pretty in this album. No. There are times where he sounds soulful, but I would never say that his, his voice sounds uh, smooth or pretty on this album because it doesn't. It's raw and it's, you know, completely strung out and it's completely pushed to its limits. And I really like that about this album. You know that it's the down tuning that did a lot of this. You know, when yes. because they, they were always like a, not a down tuned band. And then suddenly, uh, for Load, I think Load was the first one, they down tuned. Um, and I, I, I don't recall where exactly, but I know I read, it may have been while I was on Hammer, I'm not sure, but I read an interview with James where he basically admitted that he had to change his style because, and change the key that he sung in because down tuning just. You know, if he'd sung the way he had on all the previous like four or five albums, it just wouldn't have sounded right. You know, they sure. tried it and it sounded terrible. So he had to change the way he sung and everything. And that's why vocally those albums sound so different. And then for Death Magnetic, they went back up a step or two yeah. and he went back to his old style. And that's why it sounds so much like part of why it sounds so much like the old Metallica. Right. And so you've got, you've got that huge sort of difference. Um, from a from a voice standpoint then you have just the the unfiltered sort of distortion and and crunch of the guitars on this album which are are just very heavy and then of course you cannot talk about saint anger without talking about <laughs> the <Lars's>, drum <laughs> uh, drum choice and so for people who have listened to this for the first time maybe you're you're you know you heard this episode and then you went and checked out the album and you're like what in god's name is that awful sound that is ringing in my ears every time he strikes the snare drum. Basically what Lars did is he turned off the snare. So there's a clip on the bottom of the snare drum where when you fasten it, it holds the snare to the bottom of the drum. And every time he hits it, it sounds like a regular snare drum. If you unclip that, then it just sort of loosely kind of hangs off and it gives that drum the, uh, the tinny sound. And I, and I didn't know that to begin with. I went and read about that because I was like, what in the world did he do with that? And so it sounds like, you know, a steel drum in some places. It sounds like he, I assumed that he had sort of loosened the, uh, the snare, but he actually sort of just disengaged it. Completely removed it. Yeah. yeah, And so it just sort of falls away and and you get that sort of really tinny sound. And I, I am not a fan of that. And, uh, but because for one reason and one reason only, because it overshadows a lot of the songs, yes. and it takes and and this is the Lars. This this is so Lars Ulrich. He 
there's a scene in some kind of monster, and this kind of tells you everything that you need to know. So they're sitting around, and James is kind of explaining to Lars, and he's saying, you know, I, I'm. They're listening to something that they recorded, and the drums are sort of. Um, he he's got this odd beat that he's playing, and the drums are sort of just kind of out there. And James is saying to Lars, you know, I'm used to having the drummer do the beat, you know, hold everything together. And Lars says to him, well, you know, what I'm hearing from the guitar parts, it's a little straightforward, a little stock. So I started trying to introduce some kind of edge to it. So he's basically saying to James, well, your guitar parts are boring. Yeah, and your so riffs because, are no good. <laughs> exactly. Because your riffs are boring, I'm sort of taking the lead with the drums and so that's why I'm not sort of hanging in the background holding down the beat. And to me, that is the perfect microcosm of the relationship between James and Lars, is they're always sort of fighting for dominance of, you know, um, even how they write songs or, or and that kind of stuff. And so that's my problem with Lars's drums on, on uh, specifically the snare drum, because I think his bass drums and the toms sound fantastic, and yeah. they punch. It's just and the they, snare, yeah. They hit, and so the, you know, the heavy, the low drums they sound fantastic and they really add a punch to the songs. And there's a couple songs in particular where I feel like the, the drums really uh, emphasize the song, but that, that ring every time he hits the snare drum, it gets distracting and it pulls you away from, you know, whatever else is happening. And, and in some songs that's not necessarily a bad thing because the riffs are, are kind of, he wasn't totally wrong when he said that to James. I mean, there are some very, uh, basic and boring riffs on this album, but I don't think you fix that by making the drum so annoying that everybody can't focus on what the actual you know riff is. So, but it's just interesting that that's how he decided that he was going to fix that. To me, uh, in a lot of ways, Saint Anger seems like an album where Lars saw that James was really struggling and was sort of vulnerable, and he kind of struck like a cobra and made this an album that he you know, had a lot more creative control over because when you read about the album, what yeah, would happen yeah. is James would go home for the day after he was done with rehab. Uh, he came back and had limited working hours. So he would come in, they would record, and then um, Bob Rock and uh, Lars would sit around and go through what they've recorded. And so he certainly had much more of a hand, it seems like, in the engineering of the album and, and putting the final album together than he might have otherwise had had they all sort of been on the same page. And so, um, all right, I I think it's time. Let's let's start going through the tracks because sure. there's, there's a lot of stuff you're saying there, which is yeah, stuff that I certainly have made notes about on the tracks, and I'm sure you probably have as well. So, um, and one of those is the guitar sound, like frantic. It starts, and the first the first guitar sound sounds, you know, you can tell it's grimy, it's a bit sludgy, but you know, fair enough, you know, distorted guitar sound, whatever. Da, da, da. And then the second guitar comes in, and that's the real clue. When sure. the second guitar comes in with that weird high-pitched, almost like half out of tune riff over the top, and yes. then James begins shouting, and you're like, whoa, this is not like any Metallica track I have ever heard before. Even compared to Load and Reload, this is something completely different. Yeah. 
and this is where I feel like it's a, so I really like this song for a number of different reasons. Number one is it's under six minutes long, so it, it's tighter. <laughs> and, and I don't mean that to disparage some of the other songs, but it's tighter because yeah. no, it no, no, has no, no. it has a clear mission statement. It's a good opener. Um, the drums uh, emphasize rather than overtake what is happening with the riffs. You're absolutely right with the two riffs working together, and this is a you know a place where you really see. You know where James is screaming, Fran, tick, tick, tock. He's he's just going for it, and I love the energy on this opening song. You know, by the time you're done listening to this opening song, you're like, okay, they're not screwing around. Yeah, they they're bringing it from a from an emotional standpoint. Like oh, they're totally, yeah. they're putting it all out there, and that's cool. I think that's a great opening song. It reminds me of um, what's the song? It's one of the songs on Nevermind. Uh, is it Territorial Pissings? Maybe. One of the songs on Nevermind, anyway, um, that uh, Kurt Cobain like is just screaming the you know the sort of last line, repeating over and over again, and his voice you can hear his voice literally crack, you know, and uh, they just kept it in. They you know a yep. lot of a lot of bands would have gone oh I'll have to do that again. And he's like and they're like no 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 keep that in that's because you can hear his voice just crack and break and that's it and he, he can't do anymore because he's. And he's just lost his voice. Right. And, and the beauty of that. I was that. just going to say, that's what the chorus here reminds me of. Yeah, it is that. I mean, James doesn't, his voice doesn't crack, but it sure. is that same, you feel like it could at any moment. And the thing about, you know, especially with heavy metal, this is so noticeable, is that back in the day when we were growing up and we were listening to these albums, particularly the first and second albums from these bands where they didn't have a lot of money, you know, in, in some ways they had either just gotten a record deal or it was their their first album that got picked up by somebody, the production values were crap. And so oh, yeah, they didn't yeah. have the ability to clean all that stuff up. They didn't have the ability, but we fell in love with that rawness and it became part of what heavy metal is. And so over the years, when these bands like Metallica got humongous, they fell prey to the fact that they were spoiled and they could clean everything up and they could make it as crystal clear as possible and they could overproduce it. And you can, I mean, there, there's a laundry list of bands that essentially produce themselves right out of their own sound over you know the decades i I would throw def leppard in there as a a band a great Uh, example of a band that completely produced themselves right out of who they were um you know as time went on and so in some ways i like this you know return to form and and what they what they sort of call either you know putting it out raw or not it's just them sort of going back to their roots of they didn't have these luxuries back then and you could argue that the music was better so why not revisit some of that stuff now so yeah frantic kicks the door open on the on the first tune and then with saint anger um i feel like they continue it i like saint anger I do, but it's too long. It is oh, too with- long. And, you know, you, you mentioned length before. This album is one hour and 16 minutes long. Now, that's not actually their longest album, <laughs> believe right. it or not. Um, but it is noticeable that up until the Black Album, all of their albums were either under an hour or a, a little over, like, you know, an hour and four minutes or something. And then from Load onwards, suddenly they're all like an hour and 15 or more. 
And you can start picking out the parts of the songs that are like, oh, they should have cut that. They should have took that. But like, there's a tempo change at some point during the song where you're like, oh, that was completely unnecessary. And then when they find their way back to what the song actually is, um, it's almost too late at that point. So yeah, it overstays its welcome. But the intro is great. You know, when you just have him strumming on the uh, the one string, and then you have the you know the drum sort of chasing that. That to me is a great buildup at the beginning of that song. And so I, I feel like, yep, it, maybe it does stay a, a little bit too long, but by the time you're done listening to the album, you realize that this was nothing compared to some of the other songs that over, sort of overstay their welcome. So, <laughs> well, and, and, and it's a great chorus as well. The whole, like the whole yes. double, double track vocal thing where he's singing over himself, which I, I, I'm not, Metallica don't do a lot of, you know, I know, right. I don't think this is the first song where they do it, but, because I'm pretty sure that on one of the either load or reload songs they do there as well. But it is unusual for them. You know, it's something that other metal bands do, but Metallica don't do a lot. And it really works here, I think. Because, it, you know, right. the, the the background voice is shouting and then the foreground voice he's actually singing, you know, singing St. Anger Around My Neck. So I, that just works really well. It's a really good chorus, I think. But- yes, and and while the riff is super simple, that combined with the emotion of, you know, the chorus and things like that, that carries the song. Yeah. But it should end at around four and a half minutes. Um, yep. And then it would be nice and compact, a quick punch in the gut, you know. But Correct. instead, they can't resist. Like, I think there's another, like, two, two and a half minutes. And all they're doing is repeating stuff they've already done in that song. They're just repeating riffs that you've already heard. It's, and remember it, what you just said, because we're going to say that about 15 times through the rest <laughs> of this album, because it, it, is that, it, it is that wash, rinse, repeat of, okay, you took out the guitar solo and you replaced it with more extra riffing and 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 the the thing is is that there's not there's very few riffs on this album that you would single out and pull out and say that is an amazing riff that is just an amazing riff that whatever band there are whatever bands there are some and yeah not as many as on something like lightning or pop so to just have these repeated riffs when you're playing something very simple like the beginning of you know saint anger that's not complicated um, so you got to be careful with how much you use that, you know, mm. when, it, it, because you, you don't want to beat people over the head with it. And so, but so Saint Anger, yes, maybe stays it's it's uh, overstays its welcome a little bit. Now the next uh, song. Well, hang on before we get to that. Okay, so, yeah. Okay, so here's an interesting thing. You just made me think of this. A lot of what a lot of modern bands do that don't have you know big solos or whatever, um, and they even do this on shorter songs. But what a lot of modern bands do was that they'll have a breakdown rather than just repeating uh, a riff that they've had before for the bridge instead they'll have a breakdown and it'll be half time and it'll be all like single note chugging with maybe a a return to home at the end of the bars or something and that's how they break things up and it is different and it is something you haven't heard before it's not just repeating sure you know stuff that's been in the track so you can do tracks you know with no solos or very minimal solos and still keep things interesting um, I would say that two of the other big four bands that we're going to be talking about, uh, Slayer and Anthrax, are both masters at that. Yes. And so you could dig into any of their back catalogs. Sl- Slayer, especially in some cases, the breakdowns are the best part of the song. Um, so y- yes, absolutely. Metallica, n- not so much. And, and although they do do that some on this album, and I would say they're probably 50-50 hit and miss with... I agree with, completely, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so it's interesting when they try it, it's just not always successful. So um, now right. some kind of monster...
Was this a single? Uh, I don't know if it was a single what? or if it was something that was put out to promote the movie. Right, um, okay. Because of, I've you know, always felt like this title. is this feels to me like the centerpiece of the album, even though it's only track three. It always a bit like. Um, I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe you don't feel the same way. Maybe this is just me. But for me, For Whom the Bell Tolls feels like the glue that holds Ride the Lightning together. Um, and this kind of feels like it fills the same role on this album for me. This is like the sort of, this is the big swell of, okay, the first few tracks have all been leading up to this. I don't disagree with that, but I think that that's not necessarily a good thing. Because so, it's too you know, early. <laughs> well, it's too early and it's too, it is way too long. So this song is 8 minutes and 27, 26 seconds long. So you talk about a song that overstays its welcome. This song I wrote down takes 2 minutes to get into the basic rhythm of the song. So this meandering opening where it's kind of just dun, 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 dun. It, it, it takes 2 minutes before the song actually kicks in. That to me is way too long for you to lock into what this song is supposed to be, and then when you add to that the fact that they uh, do that, you know, wash, rinse, repeat thing a few times too many in this song, it just adds an extra. I mean, I would say three minutes to a song that could have been five and a half minutes long and would have been a crystallized centerpiece of this album because I do like the um, I do like the chorus. You know, I, I like the, and I do like a lot of the lyrics. I'm not crazy about the basic rhythm of the song, but it does have some parts that I think really punch. My problem is it's just, it's three minutes too long. It's eight minutes and 26 seconds long. That's crazy. Wow. This, okay. Okay. This is where we finally, this is where we diverge. All right. <laughs> because I actually, okay. Firstly, my God, you're, you are in for a treat with some of the doom albums I'm going to make you listen to. If you think two minutes is a long time to get to the meat of the song from the intro. <laughs> um, from, I would say for Metallica. Well, for, it yeah, is, it's unusual for know? Metallica, certainly, but, um, but I no, I love this song and I think it actually, I think this is one that benefits from the length. I timed it. It takes three and a half minutes to get to the first chorus, but at no point during those three and a half minutes, did I feel like it was dragging. It was moving along. It's got a slow tempo, so, you know, and it's moving along and it's dynamic and it keeps building and building and then it hits that first chorus and then you, you're just into it, you know? And it's a great riff, I think. It's a really, the basic, dun, da, 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 dun, boom. That's a great riff. Uh, and it's a good arrangement. It, for me, it keeps your interest. And I actually don't care that it's eight minutes long. I think it, this is one of the few songs on this album that actually merits being that long. It actually hits on one of my biases too, though, and and so this, I, I sort of have this sort of knee jerk reaction to to a, a lot of Metallica's modern music, but a, a lot of bands who have sort of brought in this influence. I am not a country fan at all, and this oh god, is a song neither am to I. Me, but but this is a song that feels to me like it's got that southern twang to it, um, that that sort of turns me off a little bit, and I feel like Metallica has brought upon more of that over over the years that. Uh, that I'm not a huge fan. Maybe not so much with Death Magnetic, but with Since with the, Load, really. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay, yes. well, hang on though. Here's the thing. But see, I don't. I mean, I can see where you're coming from, but I think it is more uh, sludge than country. Is the influence here? And I mean, do you like bands like Down and uh, I Hate God? You know, the sort of the New Orleans scene. I uh, yeah. I mean, they're not my preferred bands but i will listen to them and i will enjoy them and i can see that now that you mentioned that i can sort of see where that's that's coming what from that, that's bit, what but. this feels like more to me than country I, I can see where you're coming from and yes there is that sort of 
yeah, the kind of the slight twang, as you say. But to me, this feels more like it's drawing that from New Orleans than from, you know, uh, Missouri. <laughs> My American geography is letting me down. <laughs> so we so we disagree on some kind of monster. What about Dirty Window? I'm going to let you go first on this one. Uh, okay, I I like it, but I think this is the one, more than any other track, this is the one where the snare ruins it. Because you literally can't hear some of the riffs over the drums and that reduces the power of it and there are some great you can tell that underneath there's a lot of impact in some of the sort of big chug stops of you know like but you can't hear the guitar doing it because you've got Lars going over the top My first note on this song, lame drum intro. That was my first note on this song because it's just dun, 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 dun. It's like the most, it's like what my eight-year-old son would do on a set of drums when he picked up the sticks. Like it's not even an interesting beat. It's There's nothing interesting about it. And And again, to lead with that. Right. Well, that could be, right. That intro riff could be a modern metal band's breakdown. If it was if it was bass rather than snare, that I could hear that from I don't know the defiled or motionless in white or something sure. like that, you know. But in, because it's all snares, it you can't hear the guitar. <laughs> I, I think the tempo change actually helps this song. Um, you know the part where he's singing, "I'm the judge and the jury, and I'm executioner too." Most to me, most interesting part of that song where they slow it down a yeah. little bit. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and you've got the the bass and the guitar just sort of, uh, sort of almost muted in the background. And again, that's a point where you've got uh, Lars more on the cymbals, so he's not overpowering you with the snare drum the whole time. And so so I do, even though I don't really love this song overall, that piece of it. To me, I like to go back and listen to, so it carry that piece carries the song for me. I'd agree, I'd agree, but yeah, th- this is you know you can. This is clearly one where Lars just went everything up maximum volume. <laughs> uh, now, Invisible Kid, I know you like th- this. Is one of your favorite songs on the album, right? This is probably my favorite track on the album. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Um, and in some ways, and I only realized this when I was listening to it again before this show. It's probably the one on this album that sounds most like a load reload era track and maybe mm-hmm. that's got something to do with it because i love those albums load more than reload but i do think those are great albums and i just love that main riff <laughs> Invisible kid, never see what he did. Got stuck where he is, falling through the grid. Invisible 
that is that is one of the better riffs on the album for sure. Uh, it, well, and it's the and it's the down 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 at the end. You know, the sort of bouncing open notes at the end that yes. really—that's what really seals that riff. And the whole like open your heart, I'm bleeding right here. Like the screaming, the that is really good. And then the part where they again they slow it down and he's singing, "Ooh, what a good boy you are," and his voice is kind of going all over the place and stuff like that. Like yeah. I in this very mocking tone. Like I I like all of that. So yeah, I I think. Uh, I think Invisible Kid is a is a good song on this album. Do you know what else they did on this on this song? The drums are mixed down. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I again only noticed this when I was listening to it back and actually sort of making notes for the show and I realized, "Whoa, the drums on this track are like 25% quieter than on Dirty Window." And I think that really and they don't drown out the guitars as a result, so I think that really makes a difference. And the other thing too that makes a difference to me is when the when the drums sort of chase the guitars as opposed to the other way around. I, I like you know when he's when Lars is using his beats to emphasize rather than overpower. And so yeah, as you mentioned with the with the mix of the song, it definitely it definitely sounds better. Yeah. Um, it does go on a bit though. This one, I think this is another one that could have. Well, ended let's it. see. Invisible Kid is eight minutes and thirty seconds. Yeah, it could have ended so. at like four and a half, and I don't think anybody would have minded. You know. I mean, they, they do have, this is one where they have a bit of a halftime breakdown, but they don't do anything really interesting with it. The only, like the best part of the breakdown is when they come back out of it with the bridge riff that leads back into the main riff. Well, and again, like if, if there's two things that this, uh, this album as a whole reminds me of a book without an editor. It reminds mm. me of Stephen King's It, and it reminds me of Peter Jackson's King Kong. They ah, right, yeah, are yeah. just very self-indulgent, like go on forever and ever and ever and probably could have been 33% shorter than what they actually are. And, and I think in this one, it's specific songs that sort of commit that felony and, and uh, Invisible Kid is an otherwise good song. So you don't mind it hanging around, but it probably could have ended. It's flabby. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. All um, right. What so do what you think of My World? I want you to go on this one. So here's my notes here. I have eight seconds in, great riff, uh, great rhythm, terrible chorus. Uh, that's that was my, so the whole it's my world now. Like I I can't stand that part of the song, but I like the other parts of the song. So I, I was not um, I like the dun 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 like I like that whole piece of it. Um, I like the way he delivers you know the the verses, but the whole it's my world now. I don't like that. Uh, I just don't like that part of the song. It just doesn't do anything for me. But overall, um, I like the riff. Uh, for me, this is one of the only like real duffers on this album. Um, I wouldn't argue you on that. It, I, I certainly wouldn't fight for this song. It's not that it's bad per se, but it feels like a B-side. Do you know what I mean? This feels like a, like what you get nowadays with the sort of, you know, if you buy the whole album and you get the bonus tracks. Sure. This would be one of those bonus tracks. If you cut this from the album, I don't think anybody would even notice. Nobody would miss it. And the crazy thing is to keep in mind as we're talking about like what songs we would cut and what songs we would keep is that they had like 35 songs for this album and they cut it down to this 11. And so two questions I continually ask myself when I listen to this album is A, these are the 11 songs that they chose out of the 35 that they had. These are the best of the best. And B, 
this is an album that was six years since their previous album. So those are the two things that just keep rattling around in my head when I'm when I'm uh. listening to this album is was it worth this wait? Was it th- these are the choices that they made. So but again, I mean overall, um it just makes it more of a fascinating sort of creation by this band. So so yeah, we won't spend too much time on my world then. What about Shoot Me Again? Uh I I think it's fine. Um it the, but there are some moments that elevate it. Like I love the opening riff. Uh, uh, the sort of and the main bouncing riff and the build up in the verse lines, the way it goes, you know, quiet to sort of. Uh, I like that. Um, and when he's doing the all the shots and the dead stops, oh. boom, you know, and just silence for like a microsecond. And just how that that talk about a bouncing beat, like when yeah. he's you know he's saying all the shots you take, I spit back at you. In the in the in the dun, tempo dun, sort of changing. Yes, yeah. it sort yeah. of it sort of comes back around like that. That is really tight. That I really like that part of the yeah. song. It's um, it's very dynamic, and dynamics is a big for me. That's a big thing in sort of reg, you know regular metal, if you like. Um, and it's a very like head bobbing sort of moment too when they when they get into that. Like you can feel that whole yeah. Um, there's a groove there that I really like. Um, but I do think it's, it's another one where they could have cut minute, minute and a half and nobody had cared. My last note overstays. It's welcome by two minutes. <laughs> there uh, you go. That was the, what I had. So we're not so that. far apart after all. No, no. And, and again, and, we, and we'll talk about it at the end, but man, imagine if they shaved 15 minutes off this album. I think we would yeah. be having a different conversation oh, here if, now. If they had lost, uh, my world and we'll, we'll wait, but like one of the, another track later on, if they just lost a couple of tracks, it, I hope it's not the next one because be Sweet so Amber tight. is my favorite song on the album. <laughs> no, no, I really like Sweet Amber, actually. I love this song. Like, I love everything about this song. First of all, it's five minutes and 27 seconds long. It is yep. the perfect length for what it needs to be. Um, it's obviously a song about James's struggles with alcohol. So it's very personal. It's very emotional. Uh, I love, love, love the riff. I love the way the drums punch on this song. Wash your back so you won't step on Get in bed with your own kind Live your life so you don't see mine Drink your back so you won't shine When she holds my hand And I lie to get a smile When she holds my hand And I lie to get a smile Use it what I want to get what you want Use it what I want and and as it gets to the end of the song just the emotion in it 
I so to me like this this is my favorite song to pull off of this album. I can I would throw this uh song into, you know, a mix album of Metallica tunes. It, it is a standout tune for me on this album for sure. I love how aggressive it is. Everything about this track is angry. The like the music, not just the lyrics, I mean the music, the singing, the style, everything about it feels like it's being done through gritted teeth. You and know? you talk about sludge, like when that when that song gets about three quarters of the way through, when he's screaming "Sweet Amber," and then they're just playing the main riff over again. But it, it's just all on top of one another, like yeah. the drums, the bass, the guitar. It's just sludgy. It's just like it's just emotional. It's that. like the, it's like the old wall of sound, but for metal. Yes, <laughs> yes, it but, just really uh, just a great way that that song brings it all together. Do you know what this track reminds me of? And this may sound crazy, but hear me out. It reminds me of the Outlaw Torn. Oh, from Load. Mm-hmm. Now, the Outlaw Torn is my favorite song on Load. I fucking love that song. Okay, and one of the reasons that I love it is because it has that same sort of. It sounds like it's being played by guys who are just seething with anger, like yes. from, you know, sung through gritted teeth and this massive, like barely holding back the desire to just burn everything. You know, and right. even though they sound completely different, I get the same vibe from this song, and that's. That's why I like it. It's like somebody pounding their fist into a punch bag over and over and over again. You well, know? and he's just saying, you know, look at this thing that has taken so much from me and, and just, uh, it, it's just a great, great overall song. So, yeah. yep, we're agreed on that one. Oh, yeah, definitely. Now, what about the unnamed feeling? <sighs> I've got a sigh in there, too. I, I always feel that I should like this track more than I do if that makes sense. Like it's got a lot of elements that I like in general. It's got a a slow, hard riff. It's got that downward return to home at the end of the main riff, the down tune breakdown. It's, you know, lots of things that in theory I really like, but it just doesn't quite do it for me. Puzzle pieces don't fit together as well on this yeah. song as they do in some other songs, and I think it's that that sort of uh, sludgy, aggressive breakdown that I almost feels like out of place in this song because the slower parts of the song, where he's singing with a lot of emotion, are very interesting, and then towards the end where he's you know saying the chorus, the unnamed feeling, and they're again playing that really, they're just playing a much heavier version of that uh, slower riff. And it's all really coming together. I really like that stuff. But the part where he's sort of screaming in the background, dun 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 dun, that to me doesn't necessarily work as well in this song. I'm not saying that it's a bad riff, yeah, yeah. Um, but it just doesn't fit with. It. I think the contrast they were going for here didn't necessarily work the way that it was intended. But I mean, even so, it still feels like a song that's about the Incredible Hulk to me. You know, it's it's it's, it's just like the, this completely hulking out and when when the feeling overtakes you and stuff like that. And so I, there there's a lot to like there, but again, this is a 7 minute and 10 second song. Yeah, it just doesn't See, my instinct would be to say, normally I would say, oh, they just it needs another go round. 
You know, yep. just just look at it again, trim tighten it up, it up. You know, tighten it up. Yeah. But we know from the documentary that one thing they were not sure of on this album was time. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, or, or you know, f- fiddling with songs. And even when yeah. you listen, when you watch, maybe the, they fiddled um, with it too much. When you watch the documentary, I mean, even a lot of the songs that in the movie they seem to be happy with are drastically different than what you hear on the yeah, album. Yeah. And and that was really striking to me as I watched that thing again last night is, wow, even the ones they like don't sound anything like that when you listen to the album, which is crazy. There is something to be said for uh, following your instincts and just re- you know making an album quickly, going yep. with your gut, and then just putting it out there and not second-guessing yourself. Some of my favorite albums, and not just in metal, um, I like that, you know. Well, never mind. Actually, famously, was recorded really quickly. Um, yep. And uh, is it Reckoning? I think the second REM album was. They claim that it was recorded in like six days. They booked yep. twelve days of studio time, and you know, took the rest of the week off and got drunk. There are there are arguments about you know how true that is, but even twelve days, frankly, that's incredibly short to record an entire album, and they're all classic songs. And if you, uh, I mean, when you watch that documentary, if there's one thing that you could take away from that is, boy, these guys get in their own way a lot, don't they? Yeah. And, and and you know what I mean. And so, like that, th- yeah. I yeah. mean, everything That's about a good that, way of putting they, it. Yeah. They do. They they just get in their own way. And again, not to keep comparing them to like Def Leppard, but it just there there are some parallels there with how uh, over how much they overthink the process sometimes. Yeah. Um, and and so, I yeah. I do think overthinking is a generally a bad thing for metal bands. Generally, yes. Especially uh, when you have, and on the flip side of that, it's not a bad thing to get together in a room and just jam like they clearly did on a lot of the songs on this album. But then there has to be a part where you realize that the jam needs to be tuned up a little bit and uh, right, you need and, to you know, edit. clean. Yeah, exactly. You need to create a song out of that as opposed to just you know uh, taking that jam and putting it on an album. Yeah. Um, can we both agree that Purify is by far the worst song in the album? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank yep. goodness. Okay. Good. <laughs> yeah. My first note. This is the other song that I would just ditch. read you my notes here Go purify on. terrible that was my first note terrible oh i thought that my was all second, your notes <laughs> yeah uh and then i elaborate on that terrible riff terrible vocals terrible chorus terrible uh, terrible i wrote twice and then i said microcosm of the entire album half-baked ideas at five minutes it's still too long almost cannot listen to it so th- now, i i despise this song like it, the, it is uh they turned it, lars to, back up again for one thing and yep. Not only that, but just talk about a just a waste of space. This song, like, there's nothing about. There's no redeeming qualities to this song at all. Oh, sure. Um, well, one of the my notes are pretty much every element of this track has already been done somewhere yes. else on the album and better yes. done better. Yes. You know, and yes. yeah, and they also turned Lars back up to full volume again. So exactly. really, just they're not doing themselves any favors. I mean, there's five minutes you could have got back right there, and yeah. it's and it's it might be. I'm looking at it. It is the shortest song on the album. And it's wow. still terrible. Wow. <laughs> so it's only five minutes and 14 seconds long. There uh, is a risk with long albums like this of wearing out your welcome. Yep, unless, and, t- unless you do th- interesting things towards the end. And by the time we get to this track, 
Yeah, they're just starting to sound like they've run out of ideas. And uh, we're almost too tired to care. And that's the right. problem because all within my hands. All within my hands. Hold it dear. Hold it suffocates. talked about some kind of monster being um something that could be the the sort of emotional and musical core of this album i think this song could be all within my hands because they're about the same length i think if this song sat at sort of number six as opposed to number 11 it would have been much more memorable because by the time you get to the closer you kind of just want this album to be over yeah and i think it doesn't just waiting for it to end yeah i think it does an injustice to this one uh I do think this is a disappointing track, though. I'm not. There's just not a lot going on that you haven't already heard or elsewhere on the album. It overstays from, its welcome. It, it's well, eight minutes it. and forty eight seconds long, yeah. so it's the longest song on the entire album, which is saying a lot <laughs> on an album that you know is ridiculously long. Um, I said interesting intro. The, James said something in the Some Kind of Monster documentary when he talked about Jason Newstead leaving the band. And and this is what I think made me appreciate this song more when I went back and listened to it. He said, the way that I learned how to love things was just to choke them to death. And what he was talking about was how when uh, Jason Newstead wanted to do some side projects when he was still in Metallica, uh, James basically told him, if Metallica is not your number one focus, then this isn't going to work. And and Jason was so offended by that 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 James would think that he would let something get in the way of Metallica that that was one of the reasons that it drove him away from the band. And James yeah. was sort of talking about it after and how he recognized that that he you know that he does that and he was basically saying yeah the way that I learned how to love things was just to choke them to death. It's See, him holding on to something too much and killing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah I, I've know? always I have a really I have sort of differing opinions on that. I all, I respect the no side projects rule in Metallica in a way because I can understand that kind of like no 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 this is the band this is your band you know you yep. right but if you do that then you have to let the other people con- contribute. You just said you know? exactly exactly what I hundred percent. That is exactly what yeah. I would have it's said. It's not about a bad that. rule, but if you're going to have it, then you must let them make a contribution because otherwise Correct. they have no release, no safety valve. They can't. You have to ask yourself, why does this guy want to go and do a side project? Yeah. Is there yeah. something he's not getting from us that he needs to go and do? And you got to look at yourself in that process. When you look at their creative process, I mean, Kirk Hammett probably has enough material to fill 27 solo albums with the, <laughs> with the you know with how they basically put him over in a corner and just make him play you know whatever it is that they decide to do like i i'm so frustrated for that guy and he's he's such a zen he has such a zen approach to his role in metallica and stuff like that but clearly for a guy like jason newstead like that just wasn't going to work anymore because yeah. he he just couldn't so uh, so i do like that theme of this well song. i think i think the age difference may have made a difference there because don't forget jason was a lot younger than the rest yeah. of the band because he grew up as a metallica fan right 
Um, I don't like the kill, 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 kill stuff at the end of the song. Like it's it's over to me. It's it's uh, beating a dead horse at that point. Like we oh, get it. Oh man, no, but no, 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 no. That's the one thing I like about the song <laughs> is that it so there finishes. You go. That's our second place where we yeah. where we where it, we part ways. It like I mean I that that sort of you know that weird atmospheric riff that kicks in around a minute in. Before they get back into the main riff, that's like the most interesting part of the first six minutes of this song to me. Um, I, I wish that I'd rather have heard a song built around that, you know, just to finish with something different. But the sure. one thing I do like is that they finish on a burst of blast beats and chaotic guitars and James Shank, kill, 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 kill. That, you know, yeah. But fuck then it. they do the thing that you do at the end of a concert where they literally play the chords and the drums like three times, like, dan, dan. They end it like 17 times. It's like the ending of The Hobbit, for crying out loud. That's, like You okay, just don't true. know when the actual song is going to be over. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, holy cow, okay, get let's get out of here. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'll, again, I'll I, that, feel, but... I feel like if that song was that song could have uh, potentially been the core of the album had it been earlier on in the album, but at the end... And a minute or exhausted. two shorter, yeah. Exactly. You're just exhausted by the time that you get there, so... Yeah. Um, yeah, exhaustion is that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, it is kind of it's fatigue almost. It's isn't a it? commitment because- to listen to this album and and you know, we just talked about at the beginning of the show how the way that we grew up listening to music is you listen to the album. Yeah. You know, I, like I don't haphazardly throw Saint Anger in and start it at track 7. I started at the beginning mm. and I listen to it through the end and you got to have a hundred, an hour and 15 minutes on your hands yeah. to make it through <laughs> this particular album because this is also not an album that you can take a bite of and come back later. Like the the songs to me don't stand on their own well enough to to function outside of the album with the exception of maybe um Sweet Amber, uh maybe Invisible Kid and maybe um, some kind of monster, yeah. And maybe some kind of monster, but overall, to me, like this is an album that you you kind of need to consume for what it is. Yeah, I mean, for all, for all that, frantic is a great track. It is an intro track. You know, you can tell exactly. that it's leading in. Yes. It doesn't stand on its own. Yeah. Yep. So uh, before we head down the home stretch here, I just want to read a couple of things because I I'm fascinated with Bob Rock and I read a lot of his interviews. There was an interview that he did, I think back in 2007 on a site called bravewords.com. And he was being interviewed about a bunch of the bands that he worked with. And the, and the guy, Mitch Lafon asked him at the end, he said, we don't have much time left. But let me ask you how it was working with Metallica. And can you comment on the St. Anger album? And he says uh, about Metallica, it was the best and happiest 15 years and some more stuff. It's the extreme of emotions with those guys. 15 years of my life, long time, and it was fantastic. It was the best anybody could hope for. As far as St. Anger, there's a lot of controversy there. And the guy, <laughs> says, the guy says a big controversy with the drum sound, and he says, yeah. And this, I'm interested to see what you say about this. Bob Rock says, well, yeah, realistically, though, if you think about it, it was the fact that there was no real songs that was because the guy who writes the songs couldn't write the songs because of where he was personally. So what St. Anger became was what the band could do at that point, and it is exactly that. It was riffs strung together. The way I look at it was like the raw power uh, of a garage band. It was just riffs. It was the garage band, and it was supposed to sound like that. And what I learned out of it is that people in metal just don't want it to change. So it's best <laughs> that Rick Rubin continues to do the metal thing and not Bob Rock. So... Super telling statement. And there was oh, no real yeah. songs. It was riffs strung together. And and I think that 
I would argue that there are some real songs in this album, but that there are uh, at least half the album where you're thinking to yourself, it does feel like it's just riffs kind of riff together. strung well, together, right. and there's no identity for these songs. Well, uh, right, okay, now here we get to the core of it. See, like all songs are just riffs strung together. The difference is, and this goes back to what we were saying earlier about editing, the difference is that you string those riffs together, and then you look at what you've got and say, mm-hmm. Does that actually work as a song? If I trim this, if I change this, if I adjust this, if I insert maybe a different riff in here, change something out, you know, then you can look at the whole and refine it. And that step is clearly missing from this album. And so you've got some songs like Sweet Amber that just happen to fall right the first time. You know, they got lucky. But then you get other songs like Purify, where they did just throw a bunch of riffs together and then you know, because they, they couldn't go back and change it. They got unlucky. <laughs> and he, he went on to say, um, the guy said, well, you know, just by the fact you were playing bass on it, it shows that they weren't a real band at the time. They weren't four guys. And Bob Rock said, well, they had three guys, but two of them couldn't stand to be in the same room. They had all these problems personally, and they never wanted to be with each other in the same room or speak to each other again. They basically broke up. There was a couple of weeks to a month where it was over. And he said, all I did because I played bass when we put together the Mission Impossible song. That's by the way, how Bob Rock got sucked into playing bass. Uh, it was on that song they did for the Mission oh, Impossible right. <laughs> soundtrack, and then it just sort of continued. He, they said, we really can't add somebody new at this point. Just do what you did with the Mission Impossible. So he said, I was there as a friend and not as a producer. Um, he says, there's a lot of producers that don't do anything. They just say, go write the songs, and when they're good, I'll record them. He said, I didn't do that. These guys are my friends. I love these guys. They're falling apart, and I've got to be with them. He said, so be it. There was uh, I was there because I was a friend. I stuck with them for two and a half years of my life because they needed someone. That's what I was there for. We stuck together, and basically what Metallica fans have got to realize is that St. Anger is the reason why they're still a band. And if I was the sacrificial lamb, then so be it. I'd rather have those guys now as human beings and me not work, working with them. Um, I just wish them the best of luck. They're a huge band, and, and they're amazing musicians. I've got nothing but great things to say about them. So he's basically saying, yeah. you know, this process and this, you know, and the way it turned out is really, um, there wouldn't be a Metallica today if, if they didn't go through that. Well, that's really um, interesting because when Load, that was always my argument about Load. When Load came out, you know, and everybody was just horrified at that. And by God, the arguments I used to get into on Usenet about Load, because <laughs> I really like that album. And yep. one of the reasons I like it is because it doesn't sound like the Black Album. The Black Album is, you can't do that again. You know, they had taken that sort of music and that side of Metallica as far as they could go. You know, absolute precision built riffs and, you know, played with absolute perfection and the sound was flawless. And you can't, you can't do any better than that. And so they had to pivot instead and do something else. They had to play a bit looser. They had to try new things, which is what Load is. You can tell it's clearly a band trying stuff that they have never done before, that they've always thought, well, maybe it'd be cool to do that, but thought that they weren't allowed to before. And now they're so big and so successful. They're like, you know what? We are going to do that. We're going to do these things that we wanted to try because we're the biggest band in the world right now and we can do whatever we want. And that, my argument was partly that, but also without, if they hadn't done that, they would split up. If they hadn't done sure. that album, they would have just, you would have had St. Anger 10 years earlier and they probably wouldn't have actually made it through the process. Right. 
No, I, I completely agree with that. And I think that as you get older as a music fan, you're, you are okay with your bands doing something a little bit different or trying something new because you realize that that doesn't delete any of what came before. Yeah. And I think when you're younger, you get so fired up about it that it's like a betrayal that your favorite band decided to go in a different direction. <laughs> and, and I think nowadays, I mean, you know, we talk about Megadeth, their album Super Collider that came out in 2013 is horrendous. Um, but at the same time, I can go back and listen to Killing Is My Business anytime I want to, and I just have to remind myself of that. And so, you know, if St. Anger is not your cup of tea, if you didn't like it, then there's a lot of other albums in that catalog, and Metallica is a band that can have completely different fandoms based on different eras of their career. Like, yeah. as you just said, they've pivoted a couple of different times now. Um, I can listen to Kill Em All and Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets and be forever grateful that I have those three amazing albums to listen to of, like, my favorite version of Metallica. And then someone can listen to the Black Album and Load and Reload and, and have that sort of era. Um, and Justice for All kind of stands out there as this this sort of um, moment in time for them own, too, yeah. yeah. Um, which is which would certainly be worth exploring in, in its own right. But yeah, so you know, with with Death Magnetic, I think they learned a lot of lessons of um, what happened with Saint Anger and got back to sort of what they're really good at. And so Saint uh, Death Magnetic to me feels like the album that Saint Anger should have been. You know, it, yeah. it feels like a, a, a progression of that and both back toward the sound that people want to hear from them, but also um, keeping some of the things, the raw emotion and, and the really heaviness that you got with, uh, with St. Anger. So it's, it's an album that was definitely worthwhile. If not for the reasons that Bob Rock is mentioning, then I think just, um, you know, musically from sort of where they came to and, and where they are now. So, see, and I, uh, yeah. I found death magnetic really boring. I don't like that album at all. <laughs> <laughs> so you like it less than St. Anger? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I way prefer St. Anger to Death Magnetic. Yeah, absolutely. I just I, I just find it dull. Yeah. I would say a week ago, I would have argued with you and said, I think that Death Magnetic is a better album, but I've been listening to St. Anger so much this past week that it's kind of in my head <laughs> Stockholm now. Stockholm Syndrome. Um, yeah, I, I think I do have a little bit of Stockholm Syndrome, but that, that's an interesting um, comparison to think about too. I, one of the bands that I grew up listening to, as well as the metal stuff, uh, I'm a huge Genesis fan, and I grew uh -huh. up listening to Genesis. And Genesis, throughout their entire career, have pivoted, as we said, like sure. a dozen times. Like every other album, they completely change their style and probably lose a member along the way. Um, right. So the idea of a band adapting and evolving and changing its style, to me, was never alien, was never odd. That's what bands do. Um, so... And as it turns out, a lot of my favorite bands are bands that have done that throughout their career that have, you know, managed to stay around by evolving and changing sometimes to, you know, to the chagrin of their fans. But they have always done what they wanted to do rather than, oh, we've got to do this album because this is what our fans will expect. I don't really, sure. you know, I don't like a lot of bands that do that. So so the idea of, yeah, you know, Metallica producing an album like Load or then St. Anger, to me, I like, to me, that's a healthy, good sign is like, this is a band that is willing to try new things and adapt and change in order to progress. Um, and I think that speaks to sort of your maturity as a music fan that I think, again, comes with age of really being able to uh, take it for what it is. But like I say, this I grew up with this attitude because of listening to bands because like Genesis. Because of Genesis, like Genesis so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not just mellowing with age. Right. <laughs> Where for, for, so I would then put that on me. Then I would say for me, it came more with age because the bands that I used to listen to back in the day were stuck with their sound longer. 
um, and maybe yeah, didn't maybe pick so, as many yeah. chances with it. And so it was more of a shock to my system when they started doing that. And nowadays, I can just sort of take it for what it is and say, okay, well, I don't care for that, but then I still have all of this awesome stuff to go back and, and revisit. And uh, And yeah, so certainly... Metallica is one of those bands where I'm not a huge lover of their entire catalog, but there are absolutely albums that I would put in my top 20 of all time. So, and they're one of the yeah. big four, deservedly yep. so. And uh, from a sales standpoint, number one. Yep. And on that note, let's uh, explain what we're going to do here with this show. This is volume one of Thrash It Out. Hopefully, we'll mm-hmm. be doing several volumes, but for this volume, we're going to do, we think, 10 episodes. Uh, and each, at the end of each episode, one of us. Uh, alternating will name the album that we're going to talk about in the next episode so on that note of talking about the big four brian it's your choice this week what are we going to talk about in the next episode so we're going to talk about slayer next and this is a really hard decision i'm making this live as we're talking about this now this is a really (laughs) hard decision and it it's sort of a toss-up between two albums for me um and they were made within two years of each other. So it's it's a toss-up between South of Heaven and Seasons in the Abyss. Whoa, um, not Rain in Blood? No. Oh my goodness. Only because I feel like... Um, the reason I'm torn is that because... Well, I love South of Heaven. That's that's I love songs on Rain and Blood, but South of Heaven, I, I think, is I like that album a little bit better. But Seasons in the Abyss is the album that was the most accessible to anybody that wasn't really a Slayer fan. So it might be more fun to talk about that album um, but then again, everybody would probably expect us to talk about the most mainstream al- stream album. So, um, well, I think everybody would expect us to talk about Rain in Blood. But if if that's not even on the table, then phew, whatever. <laughs> I know, right? I've completely we're already throwing the, the yeah. whole show into chaos. I'm going to go with <laughs> South of Heaven. Let's talk about right. South of Heaven next time. All right. Wow. Okay, um, and that is the problem that we're going to have with these big four bands. Is that <laughs> yeah, he's picking you know, one album. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. some people were like, "Why are they talking about Saint Anger of all the Metallica albums that they right. can talk about? Why yeah, is it Saint yeah. Anger?" We're, we are not always going to do uh, the album that might immediately come to mind, and it's so hard to pick with these bands, and and especially with the big four. But yeah, let's do South of Heaven. Well, and I think it's also partly for different reasons. Like you know, we we already know all of the the Metallica albums, the Slayer albums, the, you know, Anthrax albums, whatever. The big four are not a mystery to anyone. But as we get further into the show, you know, on future weeks, we are going to be, you and I will both be giving one another albums that we may not have heard before or certainly Definitely. may not have heard much. So I think for the big four, we have to talk about the most interesting albums. And St. Yep. Anger is by far the most interesting Metallica album, whether and good or bad. Let me just bad. make a quick case for why I think South of Heaven is a very interesting album because you have Rain and Blood, which is probably considered by many hardcore Slayer fans to be by far their best album and most representative, certainly of their early sound. Uh, Seasons in the Abyss was the 1990 album that was their most mainstream, uh, both accessible and successful, I believe, sales wise, although I have to check that. So South of Heaven is the album that sits in the middle of those. Right. They were on the two, two, every two years they were releasing an album. So Rain and Blood, 1986, Seasons in the Abyss, 1990, South of Heaven, 1988. So that's where this album sits. It's a very transitional album between what 
they sort of came up as and then what they uh, sort of went to be. And a lot of people don't think of Slayer as a transitional <laughs> band. They think of Slayer as like Motorhead, like this <laughs> is the way they change. play music. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and I That's would argue that. That's not true at all, yeah. Exactly. I would argue that they have. So I think that in that way, South of Heaven is an interesting album, both for what it sort of evolved from Rain and Blood to what it would become on uh, Seasons in the Abyss. So, so yeah, put your... Uh, Put your devil horns up for the next episode because we're going with uh, Slayer and South of Heaven. You've been listening to Anthony Johnston and Brian Latendry thrash it out. If this is your kind of thing, please spread the word, rate us on iTunes, and support us at patreon.com slash thrashitout. With your help, we can stay completely independent and keep thrashing. If you want to get in touch, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com. Thank you, and good night.